as yeah. a 40 year old, I'm like, this is not what I thought 40 looked mm, like. Really? And that to me is very exciting. I'm like a fucking tree. You know, like yeah. I've been here. I think being queer is like such a gift. I think it's so yeah. wonderful. I I wouldn't change it for the world. But I think when you grow up being told who you are, and not only did they tell me who I was, they told me who I was through the language of hate. Like so much of my 20s was about undoing the internalized yeah. homophobia. And I also think we live in a culture that's very much about being hopeful and wanting to make each other feel better. Totally. But I think one of the best things we can do is actually allow each other to be disappointed, you know, yeah. to be like, yeah, that sucks. Ooh. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Queer Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Carbon. And I'm Emily. And I'm Vivek. Yay! And welcome to the show. Hi. So, today we are so excited to welcome Vivek Shreya. Vivek is a Toronto-based artist whose body of work crosses the boundaries of music, literature, visual art, theater, TV, and film. You do so much, and it's been such a pleasure to look through your whole body of work. She is a Canadian Screen Award winner and Polaris Music Prize nominee. And her best-selling book, I'm Afraid of Men, was heralded by Vanity Fair as cultural rocket fuel. So nice. What a compliment. <laughs> she is also the founder of the award-winning publishing imprint, VS Books, which supports emerging BIPOC writers. In today's episode, we're going to explore topics of toxic relationships, male fragility in the post-Me Too era, and aging and mourning a dream. Vivek explores so many of these topics in her newly released album, Baby You're Projecting. Mm which you can look at right here plug <laughs> so i recommend you check that out after listening to this so like i said in the intro your work is so intentionally queer and that's something i really loved and really felt like surrounded by that energy at your show it was really special cool and i was wondering if you'd be able to start this conversation off by really explaining some of your inspirations and why it feels important to you to take this very like queer approach with the work that you're creating it's really interesting because that's not how it started for me. Mm. I really struggled actually with being queer. It was something that felt very, very hard, especially because of the homophobia that I experienced growing up in Edmonton. Um, you know, I had friends who, when they came out as gay, they were like, I'm gay, I love it. But um, I was not that person. I would like, if I could have just like cut off my right arm to be quote unquote normal, I would have. So it took me a really like long time to sort of like undo the sort of internalized homophobia. And then I actually made a project called What I Love About Being Queer um, about 10 years ago. And it was around the time that I started to meet other queer people in Toronto, especially older queer people who'd been around, who talked about the history of activism in the city and beyond. You know, whenever people ask me, like, how do you love yourself? How do you embrace yourself? Like, my answer is always like, for me, it's been meeting other queer people and mm -hmm. other trans people, other gen gender nonconforming people. You know, there's this saying, you can't love anyone until you love yourself. And I actually think the- At RuPaul. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that RuPaul coined that, okay. but yes, but but for me, it's the opposite. I yeah. actually really think that it's been through other people mm -hmm. and loving other people that I've been able to love myself. I would say in the last 10 years, I started talking more about being queer in my art, and I felt very motivated to try to create the kinds of things I didn't have growing up and the kinds mm -hmm. of resources and art and representation that would have made a difference to a brown queer kid in Edmonton. And so that's been a driving force for me and it continues to sort of propel me forward and it, you know, it's sort of a constant inspiration. Um, I think right now, especially, I was saying this at the show, I really struggle with visibility politics and like how much it, does visibility matter really? And is it really changing things for people? And I find lately with everything that's going on in the world, um, 
it feels like being hyper gay is like mm. the best thing we all can do, <laughs> um, yeah. you know? And so like, again, I think that's something that's really inspiring me right now is thinking about how to ramp up the queerness and everything. I love hearing that because we've recently done an episode where we talked about kind of that uh, spectrum. Gay audacity. The spectrum of internalized homophobia to mm. gay audacity. Okay. And really, w after doing a lot of interviews this year of different queer people, we've noticed that it is a spectrum and you can move along it. Some people are just naturally at this level of gay audacity where you're constantly mm. just like fully yourself and there's no other option. And then so many people are at this internalized homophobia piece, but you're someone I would have clocked as like an immediately <laughs> no and queer i mean person. i again like i think being queer is like such a gift i think it's so yeah. wonderful i i wouldn't change it for the world but i think when you grow up being told who you are like my yeah. experience yeah. of queerness wasn't i got the privilege of coming out because yeah. i was a femme kid people told me who i was and not only did they tell me who i was they told me who i was through the language of hate so it wasn't like hey did you know you're gay being gay is awesome they were like fucking yeah. fag yeah. and yeah. so when you learn who you are through hate it's really hard, especially when you learn that at like 12, 13, 14, it's really hard to be like, I love this part of myself. I love this yeah. thing, especially because I didn't even know what being, I didn't know what a fag was. I didn't no. know what being gay was. And then when you find out that this is who you are and everybody around you has known this thing about you that you didn't even know about yourself mm -hmm. and that it's so abnormal and vile and gross, yeah. um, it's hard to be gay audacious. Like it, it just is. So like for mm -hmm. me, I, I, that's one of the things I think a lot about, you know, I know we're going to talk about aging and mourning soon. Yeah. This is a very positive conversation already. Um, but I'm you excited know. to have it all. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I think for me, there's a lot of mourning around like my youth because I, I don't feel like I got to mm -hmm. have a lot of like even my 20s. I feel like so much of my 20s was about undoing the internalized yeah. homophobia as opposed to, you know, backpacking with my friends and going partying every night. Like I didn't have that experience because so much of the work I was doing was yeah. trying to find love for myself you know well with all of the homophobia harassment uh abuse that one can experience as a young kid it would be easier and probably safer to internalize everything and totally. just have a lot of internalized homophobia so i would say that you do have a lot of gay audacity because <laughs> you had the bravery mm. to even get there in the first place right. which unfortunately some people don't mm. they just suppress it yeah, I mean, if I if I'm gonna use the word audacity, like my my queer audacity is that I I continue to live. Yeah. The fact that I persevered through hatred, that I'm still here, that I'm making art. We talk about homophobia as though it's like a childhood thing, but actually, it is around us at all times. There's yeah. not a time that homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, yeah. racism don't exist. And the fact that I continue to to push forward like this is gay audacity yeah and that's what i was going to say too is we feel it at the same time like making this kind of content online and i can surely assume it feels that much greater for you as well putting yourself on all of these different platforms mm -hmm. it's like you get so much online hate and for a second yeah. we felt ourselves internalizing it mm. i really appreciate people who are so out and visible about mm -hmm. themselves and make art that is so visible for other people to have something to hold on to because you're taking a lot of the heat, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word. Yeah, um, You're putting yourself on blast yeah. mm -hmm. for the sake yeah. of other people yeah. as well. 
totally. Yeah. 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 But it's definitely something that we admire you for. Thank so. you. That's yeah. really nice. Your album, Baby You're Projecting, explores a lot of themes of toxic romantic relationships and male fragility. Vivek does have a very uh, scandalous wedding happening in their, in their music <laughs> videos for this album. So you should go check it out. But I'm wondering if you could share how your personal experiences informed the creation of the album. I mean, I was going through a breakup and it mm-hmm. wasn't a traditional breakup. So yeah. um, because I think breakups, we think of them as like romantic, but we have friend breakups. There's familial breakups. There's breakups in all kinds of circumstances. And this mm-hmm. was not a traditional one. And so it was really hard in some ways because I think if you are going through a romantic breakup and you're like, my boyfriend dumped me or whatever, people are very sympathetic. They understand. But when you're going through a breakup with, you know, your religion or, you mm-hmm. know, with a friend, it it it's harder to get that kind of support. So I felt very alone in that process and was completely devastated and because Mm. of that experience I started just thinking about relationships I've had with men in general and and breakups I've gone through with men in general and so I've called the album a breakups album and basically uh yeah it really allowed me to to here's this theme again of mourning but it really allowed me to mourn like I think that for me the beautiful thing about art is it allows you to put your feelings somewhere Mm -hmm. and in the absence of being able to really talk about what I was going through I made this. And then, you know, while I was making this, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to make art now in my 40s as someone who's Mm -hmm. like, you know, mid-career, whatever that means. And like, you know, I've been around for so long. And I think the nice thing about making art now is, is that I get to kind of do whatever I want. Like the stakes are very different. I think when I was pursuing pop stardom, it was like, you know, you have to appeal to a label. You have to appeal... Mm -hmm. You have to write a hit song, all of that stuff. And like, I don't really have that pressure now. It's sort of like I get to to do whatever inspires me. And so I've always, always, always wanted to make a long form music video. I just mm-hmm. I love the way that, you know, music videos in the 90s told a story. The, the narrative in the video isn't something that's actually happened to me. It is mm-hmm. very fictional. So it was fun to create. I mean, I hope that listeners will go through the whole journey because for me, I mm-hmm. do think there's like a narrative arc. Um, for the album but I also feel like if you have a short attention span and if you only like a specific kind of, of genre of music I think yeah. that there there's something for everyone on it so I hope that people listen to that and and think about their own relationships to to breakups I guess yeah. <laughs> turn your shuffle off exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> coming back to toxic relationships we're wondering what your experience with them have maybe taught you in terms of identifying them and then taking the step further to exiting that relationship for the betterment of, of yourself and perhaps even the other person. In the moment, yeah. you don't always know that it's toxic. And again, this is, I think, where art is really useful because, like, you write about the moment that you're in. And now, in retrospect, I'm like, you know, I've had a lot of relationships change in the past three years. And there's some where I'm like, hmm, I should have maybe exited that relationship or, or changed that relationship, like, years ago Mm. but it's hard because you don't always know in the moment so I think part of it is like having the experience and then knowing for next time before meeting Emily actually like that I was in a variety of toxic relationships and I think I had this moment where I identified what was also happening within me that Mm -hmm. was attracting it and then feeding into it was there a moment for you 
also where you identified this is what I'm doing to attract it. I think I had like two epiphanies with like quote unquote toxic relationships in my life. And one was like late teens, early 20s. I realized I was really drawn to like non-available people, Mm. classic. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I really liked the chase. I loved people in relationships because then, you know. So bad. Oh, so bad. (laughs) Homewrecker, homewrecker. I just, I loved the challenge. Like I'm like, could they break up with their partner to be with me? And then when they did, I was like, Mm. I think I'm done. I, oh well. <laughs> My work here is done. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, on to the next. <laughs> and then, but it also like allowed me to feel really bad about myself because I was like, of course they wouldn't break up with their partner for me. Of yeah. course they're not into me. I'm idiots. <laughs> um, so that was, I think, a big shift was like, okay, let's stop doing that. Yeah. Um, and then I think in my 30s, I realized that a lot of my friendships, I had inadvertently befriended people who had patterns similar to my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is someone who is very generous, who gives a lot, but she has difficulty receiving. Mm-hmm. Like I've bought her presents and she'll return them and then she'll buy me the same present and give to me. Like it's very weird. It's very strange. Yeah. Like she just, I have bought her flowers and I'll buy her the cheapest flowers possible because I'm like, I know she can't receive and she yeah. won't even touch them. Like she won't take really? them. And and I actually think that's actually one of the hardest things about being a human. I think most people, I think a lot of us are givers. We don't know how to receive love. And mm. the best example I have for that is like compliments. You know, how many times do you compliment somewhere where you're like, I really like your hair. And they're mm-hmm. like, I really like your hair. Yeah. And to me, it's like right. this dodgeball thing that yes. happens, right? Whereas like, I love a compliment. Someone's like, I yeah. like your hair. I'm like, thank you. Like, yeah. I know I actually don't have that problem. Yeah. But my mom, you know, I really see this in her. And I ended up in my 30s making or realizing that a lot of my friendships were people who also didn't know how to receive love. And so what that allowed me to do was constantly replay this pattern of trying to prove myself, trying to trying to have love be received because it was playing out with my mom, but then you mm-hmm. repeat that with your friends. And it was really useful to name it because then when my friends started acting that way, or once I'd named it and I started seeing that behavior in my friends, I could be like, you know this reminds me of a pattern I have with my mom where she doesn't receive. And nobody wants to hear that they're like your mom. (laughs) Like nobody. (laughs) And so it was actually really useful because I think it really changed things in my friendships as well. So those were like two big patterns that like I was able to sort of like break out of and that was really, really useful. But I think the hardest thing is like, a lot of us can be self-aware about our patterns, but I think very few of us are interested in walking away from those patterns. Yeah. You know, I think like it's one thing to observe the pattern and be like, this is a common theme for me. Mm-hmm. But a lot of us are very attached to replaying those things yeah. over and over again, right? So it's hard getting past step one. It is. It is. Like just because you're self aware, that's mm-hmm. actually not enough to break the pattern. The bre- breaking the pattern means making a different choice. When yeah. when the when the pattern emerges again to be like, I'm not going to do this again, as yeah. opposed to like, hmm, this feels familiar. Why don't I do this dance one more time? <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, how did you start to break the pattern? I really, in my teens, I like in late 20s, I really wanted something different. I really mm. wanted to know what it would be like to be loved by someone and not to chase for it, mm. to, to just like have love be given. Mm. And, um, and being open to that, I did experience that, you know? Mm-hmm. And same with in my 30s, like I think for me, like naming this pattern and telling my friends, this is an issue I have with my mom that I'm trying to work out. Please do not 
when <laughs> I w- take the flowers. Yeah, like please, when I give you something, please receive it. I just need you to receive it. Yeah. yeah. And this isn't to say I don't fall into the trap of like just self awareness and then repeating patterns, yeah. but mm-hmm. usually self awareness for me is a lot. Like it really mm-hmm. does motivate me mm-hmm. to make a change. Yeah. So are you single right now? Are you mm-hmm. are you looking for that kind of love still? No, I'm I'm madly in love. Yeah. Oh, I love that for you. <laughs> yeah, I'm very happy. The pattern has been broken. The pattern has been broken. I'm very loved and I'm very in love. We've had the pleasure of hearing you speak in an interview to a group of artists where Mm -hmm. you mentioned that when you exist outside of the gender binary, people and people are confused about your gender presentation. There's Mm -hmm. this feeling that no one wants to fuck you. Nobody wants to date you. This actually isn't the first time we've heard someone express this. And this is kind of why we wanted to have this conversation, because I think it's a common theme for people. And we're wondering if you could elaborate more on this experience and if you found any clarity on it throughout the years. I think one of the things that no one prepared me for with transition was the shift in desirability. Mm-hmm. You know, before I transitioned, I identified as male. And, you know, even being brown in the queer community, like in a in a racist <laughs> uh, queer community yeah. um, was still challenging. Mm-hmm. But like to use socials again, like I don't have a huge male following. Like mm. most of my following is like women or gender nonconforming people. Um, and I'm bi, so that's great. But um, yeah, like it's interesting, specifically male desirability, like having men desire me has really, really shifted. And it's hard sometimes because like, especially because I feel like I was so trained to want it and also to need it, you know, Mm -hmm. like male desirability in some ways meant safety. It meant Mm. worth and uh, value. And so to not have it, yeah, it's felt hard at times. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I mean, again, I'm in a relationship with someone, so that's really nice. But part of it's like, again, intersected with aging as well. Like Mm -hmm. I came out as trans in my late 30s and there is i definitely feel like the older you are as a feminine person in the world and i'm not even that old but i definitely mm-hmm. feel a shift in how people look at you and um yeah you it's nice to feel desirable it just yeah. is it's just a nice thing and so sometimes i i miss it you know i can't yeah. and i can't control it like i can mm. you can't make people be attracted to you or whatever but i think one of the things i'm trying to do in my art is just like push the sexiness a little bit more Mm -hmm. because and and that's for me just because i'm i don't feel desirable by men doesn't mean Mm -hmm. i can't feel desirable and so Mm -hmm. what does it mean for me to create a sense of desirability for myself i haven't come to like any huge like clarity or realizations because again it's like it's sort of out of my control Mm -hmm. all i can do is try to own my own you know own my body as much as i can own my my sense of desire for myself and Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think kind of the interesting thing that i noticed of like going from sort of seeking predominantly male partners to seeking predominantly female partners is that women this is such a generalization but it was my experience Mm -hmm. is that men i think they're just like trained to constantly just like spit out compliments at you Mm. and sometimes it can feel good and validating like turning people down and that kind of thing but then you go into a gay bar and women on the other hand and a lot of gender non-conforming people are very like reserved and Mm. they're i feel like all of us are used to 
being on the other end of it of like having people come to us so nobody comes to each other you know <laughs> so you're like oh <laughs> like it's like this level of unsureness but if i just look hard enough yeah, they'll like, understand <laughs> see but yeah. i feel like with transness and trans femininity it's yeah. almost like i feel like it's a bit of like not a pedestal but it's like people are like goddess fierce mm. fabulous mm-hmm. and i'm like Okay, like it's nice, I guess, or like queen, yeah. but it's like uh, to me, there's like a bit of this, like, yeah, like a bit of like a worship that's happening, or like I don't know. And then, like, no, like, touch me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like I, I want yeah. to feel like a central being in the world, not yeah. someone's mom. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with being a mom, but like, yeah. I feel like that's what's weird is like, as soon as it's like mother, queen, yeah. goddess, it's like the sexuality's removed and i'm like if if queen goddess mother had sexuality and desire attached to those things great but for me the way that i experience those words often is like more kind of like pedestal thing Mm -hmm. as opposed to separation yeah like as opposed to you know something like a sensual being Mm -hmm. you know yeah i think the aging piece is is really interesting as well um i think another weird thing just about men in general that has been kind of like a noticed aspect that I've kind of seen online too is that so many men are willing to hit on someone who's in their youth which is really creepy and then it it goes away very quickly as well but I I do appreciate you creating art being visible visible and being older and like creating it in a very like sexual way because it's like you don't die after you turn no, 30 exactly <laughs> exactly I'm so, I'm so tired of this <laughs> yeah. yeah no i did this like t-shirt i have a new t-shirt to go with the yeah. album and like i hired a sexy model and i straddled him and i was just like yeah. like the promo photos yes. are, is like very yeah. sexy and it was like a very intentional choice mm-hmm. because i was like just because she's in her 40s doesn't mean she mm-hmm. like doesn't have desire or doesn't yeah. feel desire or isn't desirable, right? Yeah. So And they're all hot and you look fantastic. Thank you. And, yeah, I mean, I feel true. that way. And yeah. it's yeah. honestly, a lot of it's for me, right? Because yeah. again, when you live in a world that looks at you a certain way, you start to feel yeah. that way about yourself. So creating the image, like when I feel yeah. bad about myself, I look at that sexy image and I'm like, well, yeah. she's she's in here somewhere. She's, she's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that feels nice, you yeah. know? This next kind of part of the conversation that we want to jump into is sort of based around male fragility, especially Mm. as it pertains to the Me Too movement, which is something, a theme that you definitely bring into this album. Um, Kind of starting it off, though, back in 2018, you published a novel, I'm Afraid of Men. Has your view of men evolved since writing the book? No. still the same still afraid has the world changed no Um, (laughs) gotten worse worse. (laughs) it's true i'd also say i'm i've been someone who's been very afraid of men and I, i appreciate you weaving in the me too movement it's like we've done a whole episode kind of talking about my own experiences with sexual assault and um would definitely recommend people check that out if you don't feel too triggered but for me, it's yeah. like I, I didn't let any men into my life before because I felt really mm. afraid of them. Mm. And now we have 
a group of friends where I'm like, okay, there's a lot of men, some of them are even like cis and straight that I feel comfortable and good around and I feel like I can talk to them. Is this kind of like an experience that you've had as well? Like, do you feel like you can see sort of different aspects or do you still keep yourself at a very much an arm's distance? <laughs> I mean, the tension of I'm afraid of men is yeah. as a queer person, I'm also attracted to men. Yeah. Like yeah. that. that is the tension, right? I, one yeah. of the things I, I really was frustrated about with that book was how many people would come up to me and be like, I love your book, I hate all men. Yeah. And I'm right. like, oh, Oh, that's that's not, not the book. Yeah. That's not yeah. the title. And I appreciate some people feel that way. That's not how I feel. Yeah. For me, the tension is what it means to be both afraid and have desire. Mm-hmm. That yeah. like both things can be true. That you can yeah. be very attracted to men, but also very afraid. Any sort of weird criticism around the book or judgment around the book based on the title, I'm like, read the book because yeah. Yeah. It, it is it is again coming from a place I think of empathy, especially mm-hmm. for someone who used to identify was as male, yeah. right, and who understands that experience. I don't even use the word toxic masculinity. Like in the yeah. book, once I never ever use it yeah. because I don't. For me, I always like struggle with once we call something toxic as a room for it to be anything else. And mm, I think yeah. that toxic masculinity has become such a buzz phrase that I, I feel like it limits the possibility of what quote unquote mas- masculinity can be potentially, mm. right? Yeah. Moving on to this next piece, which I'm really excited about, which is to speak about aging and mourning a dream, which we've heard you speak about. Mm. In 2021, you released a book in one person theatrical show titled How to Fail as a Pop Star, which this is the part where I'm excited about. CBC Gem is now adapting into a comedy series mm-hmm. which you said is coming out this fall yeah so excited for that that really dives into kind of this notion of like the life escalator and morning a dream of like when you're supposed to reach the certain goal and then it's like oh whoa i passed that where am i now despite all this pressure around what level of success you should have by a certain age what kept you pushing to continue to pursue your artistic career especially around music i've been thinking a lot about this as i put out this album but yeah I feel like sometimes loving something is maybe a form of insanity. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because like I I can't help but do it. Like yeah. n- no matter how hard it is to put out, no matter you know, like music is not the thing that if people like my work, it's not usually the music that they know of. It's usually mm-hmm. writing and yeah. or or whatever else, which is so nice and I, I'm so grateful for that. But like music's the thing I like to do the most and so mm-hmm. I just keep doing it. And so I think and and music for the kinds of ambitions that I had in my twenties, which was pop stardom, like it is very much age centric. Like it's not mm. the kind of field like with with writing, for instance, there's a lot of people. There's that meme that's like, "Don't worry, Toni Morrison didn't write her first book until she was forty, right, or whatever." Right. But like yeah. nobody's like, "Don't worry, Britney Spears had her first hit when she yeah. was forty. Like that yeah. just doesn't exist. Like yeah. it's a very, it is a youth centered industry. Yeah. Um, but even after like turning thirty, I was just like, "But I love doing this thing, and I keep yeah. making it." So I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest, I'm just really driven by love. Like I, yeah. I love it so much. I think music is like the love of my life, and so it's complicated, and we have a, a strange relationship. But it's such a hard thing to convey because people think that either you're being delusional or ungrateful, yeah. and. And I also think we live in a culture that's very much about being hopeful and wanting to make each other feel better. But I think one of the best things we can do is actually allow ourselves to to allow each other to be disappointed, you know, to be like, yeah, that sucks. Yeah. No, I I have experienced uh, a similar feeling. For a very long time, I had this dream of being like 
a famous, quote unquote famous, as famous as you can get, uh, of a dancer. Cool. And dance is very youth centric. Very youth centric. So I understand the youth centric sort of disappointment or mourning. Um, I did go professional for a few years and I did have this mourning period of like, what is dance to me? Mm -hmm. Why? Did I want to be professional in the first place? Mm-hmm. Am I okay with not being professional? And am I well? You're still grappling was, with it. Too, I'm still grappling. I'm still coming to terms with it, and I, yeah. I'm still even now continuing to try to figure out my relationship with dance. For a while, I was like, I just don't want to do anything with it at all. Mm. For a little bit, I was like, I don't think I want to dance whatsoever. I recently uh, took a workshop with uh, one of the OGs of street dance. And somebody asked them about like, how do you like beat people in battles? Or like, how do you enter a cypher? And like, you know, how are you so great? What he said really stuck with me because he was like, when I dance, it's not about like what people are seeing. It's not about what people are thinking of me in that moment. My dance is my relationship with God. And Mm. even if you're not particularly religious, Mm. um, I think that that's such a beautiful way to describe it because it is your connection to sort of like whatever you want to call it, your higher self to the universe, to the earth. And maybe that's something that some people can take away. Yeah, Yeah. that's beautiful. How do you feel about that? This is kind of a bit morbid. The thought that maybe your work could live on though beyond you. You know, and like you have such a huge body of work, especially even musical work. You used to be mm. in a, a band with your brother. It's like you've had a long, a long body of work just in music. Do you think it's something that people could find later on even and like that could happen? Is that a thought in your mind ever? I I have I have people in my life that are like, maybe one day I'll get discovered when I die. You know, yeah. like that kind of thing. I'm, I don't, you don't care. really... I mean, that would be nice, I guess. But I, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. Like, I mean, with like climate change and everything else, like it's really <laughs> like I, how I, much, how how long? Yeah, yeah. like <laughs> I just I know will survive climate change. <laughs> like I just I don't know. To me, I, th- there's more important things. Like I yeah. really, I think one of the struggle things that I actually struggle with the most is like, does any of this matter? Does any, like mm, I I, I, I struggle yeah. with a lot oh, of like hundred percent like you know nothingness and existentialism. Yeah. So I that's where I live. I'm not like one day my legacy. Word. You know, like yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting too because like I do know artists in their 40s who like are, are like use the word of langu- language of legacy a little bit more mm. and I find it creeping up a little bit but it's yeah. less about like what am I leaving behind and yeah. more of like I've been here for 40 years I don't know how much longer we I'd, I've never felt entitled to being alive and so mm. I'm like what else do I want to say before I get out of here mm. and yeah. so just making sure that the time I have left is doing as much as possible the things that mm. like I, I want to make sure that like I've, I've said and done while being here. So it's less about like, what will my legacy be? And more about like, how do I make sure I use the rest of the time that I have here, however much that is as efficiently and as creatively and as, you know, smartly and as joyfully as possible. Yeah. So for us kind of in what we're building, and I also feel like with you being 29 this year, and like a lot of our friends kind of approaching like 29 and 30 this year too, and that being kind of somewhere where we're living at and it's kind of transforming what you think of a certain age and that it's like 30 doesn't have you not die at 30 
you know which i used to think at 18 i was like i'm dead at 30 it's like everything has to happen before 30 or else it's like ah. <laughs> i'm yeah. not laughing because i'm with you yeah. yeah and then i was like okay like in my mind has been 30 and then i like wasn't even really thinking about 40 and then we've connected with you and i also connected with the folks at yo homo as well who i know are kind of like connections for you yeah. too and they're also in their 40s and i'm like all of these people are so cool they're not dead <laughs> you're still kicking. you're like yeah. but you're still very cool is what i mean yeah. it's like i feel like before in our minds i only used to see 40 year olds as like parents <laughs> let me tell you the best so anti-aging rambling. serum secret no kids <laughs> there it is like we call this, it skincare. this is not the face of a parent <laughs> i think one of the things that has surprised me has yeah. been the the positive things about aging like obviously there's like a lot of like you know we talked about the youth centricness of pop Mm -hmm. stardom and all that stuff but like that's how i feel like as a 40 year old i'm like this is not what i thought 40 looked Mm, like really and Mm -hmm. that to me is very exciting like even when i look at my friends too i'm like we even sit around we're like did we think this is what 40s looked like Mm -hmm. and that to me is really nice and i also think it's very queer right like i think we get to choose the life we want in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. i remember turning 41 and being like oh and then i was like oh there's so much life on the other side and i'm just getting started and and like the nice thing about 40 is like imposter syndrome all that stuff like it's there but it can't it can't hold you down the same way because like i'm like a fucking tree you know like (laughs) i've been here you know like i've been here for 40 years i've had the privilege of being here for 40 years like i know what i'm doing now and it Mm -hmm. feels really good to be like okay now that i've been around and i've played the game like what do i want to do with that knowledge and experience and it's like really really nice so i mean Mm -hmm. you know obviously there's a lot of drawbacks that we could talk about but like you know i Mm -hmm. i'm i'm actually very pleasantly surprised how enjoyable my 30s were Mm -hmm. how much i'm enjoying my 40s like and i know like even madonna we have like lots of complicated feelings about how she's aging but i love i saw the speech you know where she gave she's like i never thought the most controversial thing i would do was age and i think i find it so interesting how uncomfortable she makes people just because she's like so wearing crop tops yeah and people are like she should retire she should make adult contemporary blah 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 i'm like Actually, I kind of just love that she's just like, I'm going to keep being Madonna yeah. in my 60s. I you love know? that. So I just like, I think that role models exist. I think part of it is mm-hmm. that we just don't get as much exposure to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think part of it's also just like having the confidence to carve your own path. Like for yeah. me, it's like, I've never really known what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I just was inspired yeah. by an idea. Yeah. When I wrote my first book, like I, I didn't take a writing class I didn't know what writing a book was kind of like what we're talking about making films like when I made my first film like I you know downloaded the legal software and I made a film yeah and you know I I taught myself on Google yeah exactly that's what they say and but I was inspired I was inspired to make something I was so driven by the idea and realizing Mm -hmm. an idea and I think that that's what you do as an artist is that like it's so interesting when people hear that I want to be a pop star what they think is I wanted to be famous and I never use the word famous because I actually never wanted fame I actually Mm -hmm. just wanted to be able to to have my music connect with a lot of people, which I see is different. Like for me, when I hear the word famous, I think fame for the sake of fame, just Mm -hmm. being known for the sake of known. I never wanted to be known for the sake of being known. I wanted my music to reach a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like, you know, again, nothing wrong with wanting what you want, but I think 
sometimes in the noise of socials and stuff, it's easy to forget that we are artists first and that, mm. you know, I think being an artist means like continually like following your muse, whatever it is and staying, yeah. you know, staying the course. Cause I think yeah. too, like there were so many times where I could have walked away. There were so many times where I could have been yeah. like, yeah, a lot of my friends when they turned 30, mm-hmm. 30 is like a big one for especially musicians. It's a lot of them like pack it in, go back to law school, move mm-hmm. home. And I was like, I'm just going to keep, ongoing here I don't know again don't have a lot of peers doing this I don't know I guess I'll write this book and it's all just been like hit or miss throwing things at the wall and you know every so often something sticks on kind of that sort of like internet trend thing you're bringing up where it's like this person didn't make it till this time that person didn't do this until that time Mm. where were you at kind of in your mid to late 20s approaching 30 like what was that headspace for you like, where were you? Because I'm just interested. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> in my mid to late 20s, mm-hmm. what I really grappled with was entitlement. Mm. I think that I had always believed that if you were hardworking and if you had talent, yeah. that it would all work out. Yeah. That was the model that I grew up with. That was what I was told. That's what you see in Hollywood. That's what you see in the movies. Suddenly in my mid to late 20s, I was like, oh, actually, I am relatively talented. Mm-hmm. I have been showing up. I know some people and yet none and I'm very hardworking and mm-hmm. actually that doesn't mean that I will be successful. That in yeah. fact none of us are entitled to an audience. None of us are yeah. entitled to a following. Mm-hmm. None of us are entitled to success. Yeah. And that it is a form of entitlement to believe that you are. Like, that's one of the reasons why Popstar to me felt like such an important story because so many of, like, you read biopics or watch biopics and people are like, I always believed. I always knew that it would yeah. work out. And yeah. it's like, yeah, for, for every one person who put it on their vision board and it worked, there's like thousands of us that put it on our vision board and work yeah. hard and it doesn't work. That's yeah. just reality. And so yeah. I think the narrative of like, I always believed, believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. Like, I actually think it's quite damaging because yeah. it's a lie. It's it's just not true. Yeah. Um, and what that does is it places responsibility on the person who doesn't succeed. If you don't succeed, it's your fault because yeah. you didn't believe in yourself enough. You didn't, you didn't manifest it. You were yeah. in your own way that feeling was what left like made me take a little bit of a break from music Mm -hmm. but at the same time I was so creative I was so interested in telling a story and that's that was same creative spark that then inspired my first book which ended up being more successful than anything I'd ever done as a musician before so it was both of those things at once was this feeling of like oh just because I believe in something or want something or, or I'm talented or whatever doesn't mean it's going to work out. And that was a very new thought for me. And then also thinking about how to use my voice in other ways. I think shifting or being flexible, um, some people can mistake that with giving up Mm, on your dream. Totally. And But the interesting thing about you is that regardless of which art medium you take, you're still... Uh, working towards the same goal, which is to connect to a lot of people. Totally. Being firm in your vision, Mm. but flexible in the approach, I think has been a strong suit of yours and a strong suit of successful artists in general, I think. Yeah, and I mean, 
I've also just never stopped making music. Like through mm-hmm. every book I've made, every film, like I've always tried to bring music into it. You know, yeah. whether it's like making a soundtrack for a book or using a score from my music for a film. Like I've actually like, even though I've quote unquote taken a break from music, music's mm-hmm. actually just always been there. Yeah. So that's the other thing is like, sometimes it's also about just like changing your priorities. Yeah. You know, like I think in my mind, it's sort of like taking the pressure off music, Yes. but still making music because I love it. And and yeah. that has to be enough too, right? In the yes. conversation of success and career, we also need to create room for like, how do we also continue to do the things we love, even if they're not going to, you know, give us the results we want? There's been themes of mourning throughout this conversation of mourning a childhood that you wish could have been more queer and mourning a career that you wish you could have had. Love the summary. What do you feel is your relationship to mourning right now? Do you feel like it's going to be something that's lifelong? Is it, what do you, you know? (laughs) I mean, I'm a pretty existential person by nature. So I'm constantly like right now, actually. (laughs) Like the album just came out. There's like a long form music video that's with it. And like, I've been sitting on this project for a year. And so Mm -hmm. like this weekend, I actually feel a bit of mourning because it's like it's a really weird thing it's a nice thing to have it out in the world but once it's out it's no longer mine right Mm. it's no longer it's it's not just like in my head it's in a lot of ways it's yours and Mm. how you listen to it and how you engage with it and it becomes another one of those things where if I want to go down to the wormhole of like well how many people listen to it I could but I'm not going to do that but it's like mourning such a strong word but there is a, a weird feeling of like I have to let it go yeah, you know, yeah. I, it, it's not mine anymore. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, that's my latest relationship with mourning. Is letting it go. Just letting it go, letting the record yeah. go into the world and, and hope for the best and, and yeah. feel like I've done everything possible to to give it a life and to also trust that like, I won't know, you know, that like maybe five years from now, I'll be on a book tour and someone will be yeah. like, I have your vinyl for, for Baby You're Projecting. And that'll mm-hmm. be a really nice moment. So yeah. yeah, 100%. Would you be able to tell folks where they can watch and listen the visual album and any exciting projects you have coming up that people can look out for? Sure. Yeah. So I have a very comprehensive website. I really treat my website like an archive, especially Mm -hmm. because I feel like for queer people and also people of color, our work doesn't get archived. So much gets lost. So vivictrea.com. You can find all the links to the music. It's on Mm -hmm. all the streamers, Spotify, Tidal, all that. And then the film is also on YouTube. It's called He Loves Me Until He Hates Me. And like I said, it's a long form music video. So that's out. Also on tour a little bit in Canada. So playing Halifax, Calgary, Brampton, Montreal in the next five months, four months, three months. Exciting. You can find that all on the website. On the website. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, my next big project, I guess, is the the show will be out in the fall. Like. So I, you know, as you mentioned, I, I made this play and we we shot the whole thing in, in January. There's eight episodes. I wrote every episode. Mm-hmm. I co-directed wow. one episode. Wow. I have music in every episode. I'm in a lot of the episodes, but I also like, it's, it's not just me. There's like two other play, people playing me. So I have like oh, yeah. TV childhood Vivek and TV like 20 something Vivek and I have a TV mom I have a TV ex-girlfriend it's it's really very (laughs) weird (laughs) very wild yeah that'll be I think out in the fall thank you so much Vivek for joining us on this podcast talking about your 
projects, talking about your record and mourning and a lot of really important topics with us today. If you want to check out more of Vivek's work, make sure to check out their website. It is the first link in the description down below. And until next time, peace. peace.